This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Today, we have our very own Catherine McGrath chatting with us. Catherine is a senior psychologist who works with us at Melbourne Wellbeing Group. She has over 15 years of experience working with young people and families who are dealing with all sorts of mental health concerns. In this episode, Catherine shares her personal insights on working with young people who are dealing with OCD. We talk about when to include family, how to work with parents, as well as something so important, how to have fun in therapy, which Catherine loves to do by playing Spot It. Something that Celine and I had not heard about before. Let's get started. Catherine, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of our podcast. This is really exciting. Pleasure. You have such knowledge about working with young people and parents and families. So it's really exciting to be able to explore that aspect of your work with you today. But before we kick into the specifics about your work, tell us about yourself. Tell us about how you came into psychology and into working with children and families. I'd always thought that I wanted to work with kids and I couldn't quite work out what was going to be the best way. I thought I don't want to be a teacher all those years at school. And I thought, no, that's not it. And I couldn't quite work out what it was. And then I went to uni and I thought, I'm going to do psychology. That's what I'm going to do. And I actually I'd never sort of had much to do with her when I was at school, but I went back and saw the school psychologist at my school and I asked her and I said, what did you do? How did you get here? Do you like it? And so then I thought, oh, I'm going to be a school psychologist. Clearly I'm not um, (laughs) that either. But that was kind of that point where I went, oh, okay. It was a really helpful conversation. So I remember going back, I must have been, I don't know, maybe 19 or 20 and walking back to the halls of school and yeah, and had a chat with her. So I was doing uni anyway. And then, so that's sort of how I decided that I wanted to keep doing that. But I always really enjoy working with young people and children. I think that they are the most amazing group of people to work with. (laughs) You can learn something about yourself every day. I love learning about them, but I think what they teach you about yourself is the most incredible gift that they have. That's where that passion comes from. And I love doing it. Even when I was growing up and I used to love babysitting, I thought, I don't like all the menial tasks of that, (laughs) but I loved the chatting (laughs) with the kids and I loved Even the older kids in the family might pop in and out when I was there developing those relationships. And probably the more I've gone in my career, there's all these other things that you think I need to know and all this clinical stuff. And it's all really, really important, but it's the relationship. And I've seen some very brilliant people and I think, okay, that's really great, but what's missing? And it's how do you have a relationship with someone? How do you build that? How do you build it from nothing? How do you build it from a really vulnerable place? Because quite often when we see people, that's well, actually 99% of the time, that's where they're at when they walk through that door. So that's kind of come to the present day. But yeah, all that time ago, that's how I sort of decided that that's really what I wanted to do. So I've done all sorts of different things along the way and wound my way at Melbourne Wellbeing Group, which I love. (laughs) (laughs) It's so refreshing to hear because I think that's something that Tori and I can relate to too. 
I don't work so much with really little children anymore, but I used to mostly working with adolescents and adults now. You've described it so beautifully in terms of the joy that that work can bring. I mean, that's psychology. Like you don't know what a session is going to bring. You know, how do you do the work that you do? And that's part of it. That's what keeps it exciting and interesting. There's never a dull moment, that's for sure. Definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) We are so curious about the role that parents can play when their child is seeing a psychologist. Are you able to shed a little bit of light into the value of involving parents in treatment? Yeah, absolutely. I think as my career has progressed, the role of parents, whilst I always thought it was important, I think that I can see that the tide has really shifted to the level of involvement and the importance of it and the value that is placed on it and from the very start of a treatment process that that is put to parents that their involvement and their inclusion in those sessions becomes so critical. I've read a lot of more of the recent research and I think Celine and I last year when we did the training with Ellie Leibowitz you know he really spoke about the studies that were done and the efficacy of therapy where a parent was involved maybe for those last 10 minutes And I think that really stood out to me. And I think, look, there is a place, and particularly with adolescents, they need a space where their parent might not be in there all of the time. But for those younger children, the value of parents being in there. And then it's about what you do with that. So the adolescents, you know, they want their independence and they need their own space. And there is such a difference in children sometimes when their parents are in or out of the room. But still making sure that you keep that communication loop going and being really explicit with your adolescent that you're working with that that's what you need to do and they respect that I think on the most part then they accept it too because if you set it up from that way and I think to the question around why the value of it it's we see a child say they come in maybe weekly maybe fortnightly so you're looking 50 60 minutes a week and they're at home for the other yeah (laughs) 6.999 you know days of the week (laughs) you know I think we all like to think we could do a good job and we're amazing but that hour there is so much of the rest of their lives that needs support and work and parents need to then know okay well what do I then do and it's really that shift of okay we want you and I'm sure you've both had this too you know lots of parents will say I want you to fix my child like this Mm -hmm. needs to be fixed and I understand that because it comes from a place of concern and anxiety and often distress but it's actually how can we do that so it's a team and we're on the same team too that's the other thing because sometimes I think that can happen oh well the therapist says Catherine says you need to do this no 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 we think this is what needs to happen and that's much more powerful because you have an align with the parents about helping the child but the child also knows everybody's on that same page and we're all working towards that goal together so I could probably go on about that for a really long time, but I won't. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think what you say is so interesting because you're right. Young people do benefit from and really enjoy a private space to reflect and to think and to understand themselves. But what I tend to find is that when parents are involved, everything functions a bit better because parents are less worried. They have more guidance. There's more learning happening effective things are put into place at home to support the young person. In the end, I think the young person sees the value. Absolutely. And that's trust too, isn't it? A parent has to trust you as the therapist. What a huge thing of a parent to trust us with their vulnerable child, with their vulnerable adolescent, because they're coming at their most vulnerable generally at the start. So they are trusting us with that. And that's a position of privilege, I think, when that happens. So they trust you. And how do you keep that trust going? Because then when we do have suggestions about 
we need to try this or can we look at how we might do things differently? They'll be more on board because they know where that comes from. And I think half the time too, young people want their parents involved, but they just don't know how to communicate it. Or they're just anxious about how it might be received, the response they might get. Are they going to get into trouble if their parents find out the things that they're thinking and feeling? It's about facilitating that conversation between the two of them. So many of the things that young people might share in a session, like it's the first time they've ever said it out loud. And so it's frightening and they're worried about what it might be, you know, the response might be. And then how, like you said, how their parents are going to respond and will they still think of me in the same way? Will they still treat me the same way? So we can help hold and facilitate that space as well. So that's where the parent being in there is like, okay, now we're going to bring mum in and let's sit together so we can support that conversation. And then it also comes a part of how we model some of that for them as well. Like it's really critical modelling little kids right up until those adolescents and probably for you, Celine, and Tori, like when you see adults still, when you've got a partner involved or a husband or a wife or whomever, it's still really important because we live, most of our clients are within a family unit of some description. It's just as critical. It sure is, absolutely. We've had such a rich discussion so far about the importance of involving parents. What are some ways we can involve parents? Because that research that you referred to earlier was really eye-opening and I think we both went, holy shit. Yeah, no, absolutely <laughs> did. I think everyone went, whoa, whoa. We thought we've been doing well, well, we can even Yeah, that's what exactly we're doing. what we've been doing, <laughs> bringing parents in in the last 10 minutes of a session and spending some time with them. It's almost like we've been handing over the relay button yeah going this is what we're doing it's up to you support your kid just to clarify because the research said that it's not super effective yeah it doesn't actually add anything extra to the work that you're already doing in terms of affecting change and that research spoke really specifically to childhood anxiety so it was looking at when you're working with so and that would apply then to OCD it was looking at that cohort Mm -hmm. and it was saying yeah we don't see that reduction in symptoms we're not seeing that when a parent comes in when a parent was wholly involved in that process the efficacy really went up so what does wholly involved in the process mean so more than the 10 minutes at the end and I hesitate to say well it absolutely must be the entire session as well because I think that there are times that's not appropriate equally unless you're doing a specific parent program I think that it can look really different depending on the client that you have so that it doesn't feel like, and to use that analogy of a relay pattern, that it feels like this has been an inclusive. They might be part of a whole session sometimes. I might go to the waiting room and I might say, is mum going to join us today? We kind of set that dynamic up and, and have the team or even say that 10, 11, 12-year-olds often will sometimes make that decision and go, oh, can mum come in at the very start and then I'll kind of tell her she can leave. And that doesn't mean that I might sometimes say, I think it'd be good if mum stayed a bit longer and let's see how we can do that. So I don't think there's as concrete an answer to that. You do have to really look at your individual client, but I think it's really to shift away from that. Oh, but I did give them feedback in that last 10 minutes. So wholly involved might not mean even the entirety of that session, but it's like, but are we going to have a further conversation about this? So moving away from providing handover, a few tips, a quick conversation about strategies, but actually really immersing yourselves in the parenting work. And what role they may be playing. Because again, coming back to the idea of relationships, when we have a relationship, we both bring something. So, oh, my child's really anxious. They can't sleep in their bed or they can't 
go to school. So we have to look, what does the parent do and what does the child do? Because we both bring something to that and being really careful because it's a really delicate process because it's not about blaming. And that's the most critical part. When you're working with really skilled therapists, you can see how they do that. And it's about, again, that's why it's having the parents, we're all working on this together. We're identifying how could we do something different? Not that, oh, what I did there was really wrong because that becomes really unhelpful. But actually, I think it's empowering for a parent because a lot of the time they thinking, well, I don't know how to do anything else. This is what we do in our house. And it worked for my older child. So why isn't it working with him? So I think that's really important to get to know that. And each child is so individual. So what did work with your eldest may not work with this one. And allowing them process for that. And I can see how if you're bringing a parent in solely for a quick handover at the end of a session, how then we sit in the position as expert. Whereas when you join with a parent, whether it be half a session here or a whole session there or however fluid that might be, that you're joining with them and really emphasizing their role that they are the expert, that they are the parent and helping build their confidence, their self-belief, their skill, their capacity to implement change. It's really empowering. To set those initial sessions up, like you are the expert on your child because, yes, they're coming to us for expertise as a psychologist or therapist in that process, but you are the expert on your child. And that's really validating and so important because it's true. They know, they understand that history. I can bring those other parts. I can bring in objectivity that it's hard as a parent. If I put my parent hat on, like, you know, I'm not objective. That's such a nice way to think about it. They are the expert in their child and we bring objectivity. We bring thinking, we bring reflection, we bring perspective, we bring some knowledge that a parent may not have, but it's the marriage of the two that contributes to change. It's a real learning process. Huge learning process. And I think, you know, Celine, when we heard that research and looked at it and then we all sat there going okay what do I need to do and (laughs) but then we educate parents on that too because I think the idea oh you need to take your child to see a therapist I think a lot of the time just like a child might think I don't know how to ask my parent to stay or not a parent might be like I don't know how to say I don't this isn't working and before it reaches a point of we're desperate things have hit a crisis point but to actually go oh this doesn't feel like this is helping my child anymore like I'm worried about them That's a beautiful moment for us, I think, to pivot to talking more specifically about OCD because you're right, that is something that we hear often about how parents do their best, often use instincts and then reach a point where it's like, how did we get here? Look at this. Look at how OCD has sort of overrun our family. Can you tell us a bit more, Catherine, about OCD in the family, about what can happen, how it can hook the family in? One of the things that is so important in those really early sessions is to recognise that this is a family issue. Okay, the child is the one that is experiencing those symptoms. They might hear voices. They complete mental rituals or compulsions or a whole range of things, but the family are involved and actually asking them to take a step back and reflect. So let's look at a day. What do you do in a day? And OCD is so sneaky and so clever and it hooks everybody in. Parents don't want, you don't want to see your child upset. You don't want them to see them to be distressed. So what am I going to do? My instinct is to do whatever I can to alleviate that distress. <laughs> this is great for OCD. It thinks this is fantastic. <laughs> like, this is yeah. best part. It's like winning is a great family for me. <laughs> and I'm landing here, right? I'll park here, thanks. I'll park here and I'm going to have a great time. <laughs> People open doors for me. They do light switches for me. They cut my food up. 
I don't have to wash stuff. Yeah. Do anything. <laughs> Because I don't want to get dirty. You're gross. We're not doing anything, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the family goes, oh, my God, and I don't want my child to be upset. So parents, the blame comes. It's like, no, of course you don't. And, again, I always say to parents, like, we all accommodate our children, and we should. That's important. If a child's distressed, then they, they need that from us. But when it comes to OCD, that's where we not start to be unhelpful. Because if I say, well, I'm going to chop up your dinner every night so you don't have to use a knife, because your OCD says you're going to do something harmful with that knife, what am I left with? I'm left with a child that can no longer use a knife and therefore every meal requires an adult or a sibling. That's the other thing. You know, it becomes a family. So when we're talking about kids, siblings are really important, I think. There's such an impact on siblings. Siblings like, well, you can't walk through this room because I'm eating or you can't let the dog in ever because that's dirty in the house or we have to drive this way and not that way or... We're late because I need to do all of these compulsions and I can't do that. And mum's like, well, that's, you know, we need, that's fine because we don't want her to be upset. And it's a real shift for a parent to look at that and say, okay, one of the fun things I like to do, which I know I've talked to you about, is like we play spot it a lot. So I don't know if any of you know the game. I'm quite sure. Spot it. There's a Harry Potter version, which is very fun also. (laughs) But I just go, you know, that thing, that like dragon thing, that book thing. Some of my kids think that is not appropriate and they will not let me pass that match. But anyway, (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) It's really great because what we're trying to teach them to do and you involve, so we get mum to play the game, let's spot it. How are we spotting where's the OCD? Because it's probably everywhere. They might come with one or two or three things. You all know that. And then it's like, oh, I've now noticed that I have to do this or I've now noticed he starts to do that in the morning. So using spot it as a really fun way to do that and playing the game to bring a bit of lightness to something that is often terrifying and overwhelming. And then getting parents. So that's how the parent role becomes really important because they need to do the spotting. How am I accommodating what my child's OCD is getting us to do or not do? When we're defining accommodation, We're defining that as, can you tell us? So accommodation, we're talking about almost it's like giving in to what the OCD wants. That's probably the simplest way of putting it. It's really like, well, if I need the lights on because otherwise it's dark and it's scary and monsters are going to come and maybe someone will hurt me, so we've got to keep them on. Okay, yes, we've got to keep them on because that's it. Even though you share a room with your sister and she doesn't like sleeping with the lights on, we're doing that. That's accommodating that behaviour. There'll be a million different ways in a day that that could transpire. Some of them might be really without incident in a family. They might not even notice and some of them may not cause distress or disharmony, I guess, in the household, but there are others that really do and the lengths that people will go to to avoid the distress for their children. It can be really intense and so debilitating in those moments, which is really heartbreaking. So I love the lightness that you're bringing to sessions to help families start to disentangle what's helpful, what's unhelpful, what's OCD. As you mentioned earlier, like what can even be normal. So bringing that lightness is so important, especially with young people. I think it's hard to come in and talk about this stuff. And and look, some of them, the adolescents, some of those intrusive thoughts, they're terrifying. And to say it out loud makes it even more real. It's like, no, but if I just keep it in my head, then it's not so bad. That just perpetuates it even further. It's so frightening. And and then they stop doing a whole range of things that they would like to be doing. So that, again, accommodation can fit in there as well because then parents might say, well, no, well, we won't make you go off to cricket because OCD says something about the cricket oval that you can't go to, so we won't make you go. 
And I think that accommodation really from what you're describing starts to decrease confidence for a lot of young people and autonomy, which is what we're wanting to increase. And I think that's something that really stuck out to me in that workshop that we did last year in terms of really when we're reducing family accommodation or working on reducing that accommodation, what we're doing is we're not only empowering families, but we're really teaching that young person to trust their own judgment again, to trust their own ability again, to trust that they can cope. Yes, it is challenging, but we can work our way through this as a team. Yeah, it's such an interesting message, isn't it, about accommodation. When we're accommodating and we're relieving a young person of their distress, the message that they're basically receiving through the behaviour is, I'll take this off your hands because you can't cope with it, so I will handle it for you. And then they come to therapy and we say, no, 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 no. (laughs) 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 What? (laughs) I have like adolescents and I can see them sitting on my couch like, I can see it like, I know what you're about to say, Catherine. (laughs) (laughs) You're telling me I have to touch that raw chicken. I know it's coming. It's coming. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful part of the work, like teaching them, teaching parents, including them, teaching young people how they can be part of their own therapy as well. They then know what they need to do next. So with parents, what to do? How do you help parents to start to reduce accommodations? There might be a long time that you actually need to spend with a parent to help them almost feel able and comfortable enough to do some of those things because it's also quite terrifying because the response that they're going to get. So what we have to really do is work hard on that separation, which again, in all your ERP and your OCD treatment is to separate OCD from the young person becomes really critical in that conversation because there's going to be high distress if we remove accommodation in most cases. I'm not going to touch that. You're going to make me touch it. I'm not going to touch it. I'm really distressed. And working with a parent on what responses they can give back is really important. So coaching, responses, how do you respond back? How do you separate OCD from the child? From that classic stuff we all did at uni about how do you separate the child and their behaviour, it really does piggyback onto that beautifully needing to separate and say that's the OCD talking their anxiety their distress that's the screaming the yelling at this point and helping parents feel confident that what they're doing is actually helping the child realizing with parents that the psychoeducation around every time I accommodate I am again showing them that they're not safe to do that thing they're not able to do it we want a parent to say if I want them to do this that shows them they're brave enough they're bold enough they've got this We want to give that message. You can do this, even though it's going to cause you distress, because otherwise a parent's full-time job would be to eliminate every level of distress. And we know we've seen parents absolutely burnt out and exhausted from trying to eliminate and alleviate the distress from all these new obsessions or compulsions. I think it's about saying you can do this and this is not going to harm the child. It's actually going to help them. But it can be a process. They've got to come to that of actually feeling confident that this is not only what needs to happen, but it will work. Yeah. It's having blind faith, isn't it, in the process, especially in the beginning? Oh, 100%. Like you will have parents and I know you would have the same, oh, when you told me I should do that, I thought you were absolutely crackers. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) No chance. Is that happening? Yeah. (laughs) Completely. Completely. So also picking an entry point too to that question, I guess, Tori, too. Like Mm. where do I reduce? You can't reduce everything. That's really important as well. Not all at the same time, yeah. 
not all at the same time. We need to, just like we're not going to a child or a young person, can't all of a sudden stop engaging all your rituals and compulsions. You've got to start somewhere. And that builds confidence. Yeah. So building a parent's confidence and being able to be your kind of co-pilot in this process as well. Sure does. Oh, what a riveting discussion. I wish we could talk about this all afternoon and we probably can, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your wonderful insights. What is something you know now that you wish you knew earlier in your career? Oh, such a good question. I wonder if it's probably the same as what I would want my clients and families to know too, is that you know more than you think you do. I love that. I'm going to go with that one. I could see you for hours. You know more Uh, than you think you do. That's nice. Yeah. Because clients the same. You are braver than you think. You can achieve more than you've started to think. You can challenge this. You can put that one step in front of the other. You can do it. Boy, that's nice. Sure can. And there's something, um, Catherine, that we were asking all of our guests, which is, I mean, you know. (laughs) Don't look so nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Tori. I mean, we well know that, you know, intrusive thoughts are a part of life. Yeah, absolutely. Right? We all get them. Yeah. But in OCD, a lot of people are quite frightened of their intrusive thoughts. So we're asking all of our guests to just share something, an intrusive thought that you get. Oh, gosh. Should have done some prep for this one. <laughs> Maybe there's something. Yeah. Oh, I'm not good enough. People know I'm a fake. I think that's it. I think there's something around that. Mm. Oh, yeah. I've had that one. Yeah. Like oh, I've, yeah. You know, I've done study and I've worked with these clients, but all of a sudden you can have a session and this thought comes in, you go, oh, I must know nothing about this, which I know what you would say. And Tori looks at me and then we go, she goes, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> you know more than you think yeah, you do. You know more than right? you think exactly you do, right? right. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, I think that's probably. We've all had that. I've had that yeah. thought so many times. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a good question. I like it. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much, Catherine. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure chatting with you about all things families. Thank you. And OCD. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you very much. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. rules.